You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Road. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. Today we present our complete Brewer's Guide to March of the Machine, The Aftermath, with a look at the top eight cards for Modern and Pioneer, plus more previews from Lord of the Rings and changes to standard rotation. That's all coming up on Faithless Brewing. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Faithless Brewing, the podcast where East meets West, North meets South, Boomers meet Zoomers, and every once in a while, the Zoomers just get to run completely unchecked with no supervision. There was a tiny coup d'etat last week. Dan seems to still be in shock about it. A little bit, a little bit, yes, but I have returned. I am your host, Dan Schriever, also known as Cave Dan, and I am joined today by my good friend from Buenos Aires. You know him as Mord to Light. It's Emmy Sagasti. Emmy, welcome. Hey, how are you doing, Dan? Now that we have you right back from your beautiful adventures. I had a wonderful trip. I was in Taiwan for three weeks, uh, just seeing family, seeing the country, beautiful little island. Um, I'm exhausted, super jet-lagged, getting a little bit sick right now, so... Not sure how this is going to go, but happy to be back and talking some magic with y'all. Exactly. And we have some beautiful and a bit rushed new cards. Like, we have our, like, three weeks into the last set? Four weeks? I mean, the schedule is all messed up. We're going to talk about March of the Machine Aftermath. Technically, it was previewed this week. It's been leaked for about two, three weeks now, so it's kind of a little weird. I guess technically we have not actually talked about these cards. It's a small set, 50 cards, supplemental, legal in standard and pioneer in modern. So it's a real set, and we should talk about it. We've identified uh, about eight cards that, you know, are, are worth talking about. So that is the, the meat of the show, but there's so much else going on. This weekend is the Pro Tour. What's happening in Minneapolis right now. They're giving us new teasers for Lord of the Rings. They're talking about changes to standard. They're talking about the next sets like Wilds of Eldraine and all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, I think what surprised me the most, I was talking to some guys the other days and they were talking like, I mean, yeah, in 20, we will have a new set in 20 days. They said completely ironically until it was like, guys, yeah, the new set is coming in 20 days. You know that, right? <laughs> we know you're not making a show, right? It was like with Sandman at the end of the last episode. Where Sandman was just like completely in shock. <laughs> yeah, that was that was very funny, but I understand exactly how he feels. Like so, yeah, we have a new set it's coming out in eight days. Yeah, less than that. That's great. I really need to play new. So there are some new cards for us to discuss. And during the pro tour, they went ahead and spoiled not only the ring mechanic, the temptation mechanic, and six cards for the other rings, but. All of Aftermath is already leaked and spoiled, so. Exactly. So we've got a ton of stuff to cover. 
Before we dive into all that, just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying the program and would like to support what we do, the best way to do that is by going to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. You can make a pledge at any tier you like that helps support the show. That also gets you some benefits. You get immediate access to our wonderful Discord community. Got a couple new patrons we'd like to welcome this week. They are Emperor Bulborb and GBMB. So thank you very, very much to both of those individuals for your support and welcome to the Faithless family. Exactly. We're really glad to have you here joining the chaos that's the beautiful chaos that's our Discord. All right. Got a bunch of topics. Let's just hit them one at a time. First topic, a kind of surprising announcement about changes to the standard format. Specifically, standard rotation is being increased from two years to three years. So every card will now be legal, or every set, I should say, will now be legal for up to three years before rotating. Aaron Forsyth uh, wrote an article about this. Basically, they're trying to revitalize tabletop play for standard. I think one of the key things here is it also gives us stronger tools to create an environment where decks are more colors and mechanics and less mid-range. Because right now, if you see standard, it's just X combination of colors slash mid-range. And that's 80% of the meta. So do you agree with the diagnosis that the reason for that is not enough of a card pool, so it's just generically good stuff rises to the top? Yeah, there's, there's not enough synergy between cards to justify just not playing the better cards. You are not playing synergy cards because you don't have enough payoffs for your synergy when you can just be playing the good stuff. So by increasing the size of the card pool, standard becomes a little bit more like Pioneer, right? Pioneer is what, um, eight years of sets right now? Something like that? Nine years? Might be, yeah. And standard being three years, yeah, it gets a little bit deeper, a little more synergistic. The part that interests me is Aaron Forsyth is talking specifically about the need to make tabletop or paper standard a little bit more enticing. And this is where you know the rotation coming quickly has been a big sticking point. If you're asking players to like buy paper cards to show up to FNMs or RPTQs, RCQs, to play standard and then those cards rotate within a year or within a few months, it's just a pretty feel-bad experience. And ever since the advent of Arena, there hasn't really been much of any kind of paper standard scene in any of the cities that I've lived in. Yeah. I don't know if that's true for you as well. I mean, in Argentina, there's just literally no standard. Like, I think there's one... In the whole country, there's one weekend of standard like there's only one and she is making standard and it's getting like 11 players so like there's quite literally no standard right so it's been bad and i don't know if this change will specifically fix it but it can't get much worse so <laughs> this can only help in that respect and it's coming in a good time because you know another change that was announced what a month or two ago was syncing up all of the rcq formats so that everyone is playing the same format for a given season and the standard season has not come yet but i think that when it does happen later this year a lot of us who are not really accustomed to being encouraged or forced hmm. or rewarded for playing standard will find ourselves having to buy the cards to play a standard deck in paper and uh, it's not going to feel great if that deck quickly rotates after one season so getting another year out of cards helps a little bit there yeah it would make sense and at least getting to the complete opposite of standard, the next product is going to be modern, which is, I think, the most exciting a lot of us have been having competitive play in a while. 
Oh, the next uh, seasonal format? The next seasonal format is modern and it's going to be maybe a bit tempted by the maybe a bit tempted. <laughs> so Lord of the Rings is coming what in 2 months <laughs> or is Less, it 20 days? <laughs> yeah. One of those two. It's hard to tell. 50 days. Like it's end of days. Sh- end of June. Okay, and that's going to coincide with the modern season. Exactly. So we're going to have Lord of the Rings League during modern season. And they have given us what we have been asking for at least since the first early leaks, which is, what the hell is the ring tempting you? A lot of the cards that were spoiled lingered around that mechanic. Yeah, exactly. So what is the ring tempting you? Talk us through it, Mord. So it's a dungeon-like mechanic in that you get an emblem called the ring that has like four abilities, and every time the ring tempts you, you get to choose a ring bearer that's going to be the creature that gets these abilities, like the creature this emblem in between quotes is attached to, and every single time you go up the level. It's up to four levels, and once you unlock one, that one is permanently given to the ring bearer. So first step, your ring bearer is legendary and cannot be blocked by creatures with greater power. So first step, X creature becomes legendary and gains Skulk. Second ability, whenever it attacks, you get to loot. Third ability, whenever it becomes blocked, the owner of the creature that blocked has to sacrifice it at the end of combat. And final step, whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, each opponent loses 3 points of life. So it's a combat-based mechanic making creatures really hard to block, having semi-death touch if they get blocked and allowing you to loot in the meanwhile. And it's all upside, right? You described it as a, as a dungeon mechanic, but yeah. it gets progressively more powerful the more times you've been tempted. Yeah, so if you get tempted four times, each time you get tempted, you gain the ability to give any creature you control, that creature becomes a ring bearer, and that creature gains legendary, can be blocked with, by creatures with greater power, which is Skulk, gets to loot on every attack, opponent has to sacrifice a creature, that creature that blocked it at the end of combat, and whenever it connects, opponent loses three life. It gives all the lines of text to a certain creature. You can choose a new ring bearer every time the ring tempts you. Exactly. But you don't have to have a creature in play in order for you to go up the tiers in the temptation track. Exactly. So that's what that's what the ring tempting does. And I was a bit at first I was a bit angry that it was all all upside. But I think it was first round negator that told me that it was actually correct so we're talking about purely flavor here right yeah whether the design feels like a proper ring design yeah i mean tempting sounds bad right (laughs) the ring tempting you sounds like you're about to be corrupted you're about to succumb to temptation or scumble to temptation if you prefer but in this case you just you just like power up right you're trying to get tempted. That makes your ring bearer more and more difficult to block. I don't know. I mean, these abilities feel weird to me, but you, you feel like you've accepted them. So I get the fact that you're trying to equip this on a small creature. It's like the whole flavor of the Lord of the Rings. You need Bilbo Bagging, which is a rover, and you have Frodo, which is tiny. Like, it has always been on the same side. Like, the ring always tries to go on small creatures, at least flavorfully. And it's more the fact that it's true that a magic duel, a planeswalker battle, flavorfully, just a few minutes, and the long-term effects of the ring's corruption are not instant. Like, no one uses the ring for a battle and gets corrupted by it. 
Well, that's fair enough, but there's there's literally no hint at all of corruption in this. Yeah, but neither is when Frodo uses it to escape from Nazgul, and neither is there when Bilbo uses it to escape from the party. And those are the sort of events that last as long as a planeswalker model should. So that's like the amount of corruption it should give, and it's borderline nothing. It's weird, but I have jumped on that boat. It's like some kind of metaphor for like corporate greed <laughs> short-term profits at the expense of the common good right it's like we can create great value for our ring bearer shareholders in the short term by getting tempted i mean fair enough but it's just like it's also just like kind of strange like yeah it's weird these abilities i guess i can kind of match them up to things that happen in the books or the movies but it's just weird like it doesn't seem to compare to what the actual ring card itself does I think it would be pretty great for Limited. Okay. And I think a lot of people are going to draft a lot of Lord of the Rings draft. So does this specifically change your evaluation of two of the playable ring cards? So the two that I think are relevant are Samwise, the Flash... And Frodo. Uh, well, not Frodo. No, I was thinking Gollum. Gollum is actually kind of interesting as a sack outlet from your graveyard. Yeah. So Sorry, I was talking about the new Frodo. Oh, oh, the new Frodo. Okay, well, tell us about the new Frodo. So the new Frodo is a 2-mana 1-3 in Celestia colors. So a green and a, a, green and a white for, a, for a, one, a halfling scout that when it enters the battlefield or whenever another legendary creature enters the battlefield, the ring tempts you, and it has to be blocked as long as Sable. So it literally, like, speedruns the ring. If you go, like, turn 1 Frodo, turn 3 Bilbo, if Bilbo dies, I think you just went through all four steps. Because Bilbo is a 3-mana 1-3 that whenever it enters a battlefield or dies, the ring tempts you. So the idea here is that Frodo is the ring bearer and every other legend you add tries to take the ring from him, so that's why it keeps getting tempted. <laughs> and Bilbo got tempted in every single step of the way. Okay, so is this actually powerful? I mean, I haven't actually lined up Frodo's abilities with the ring temptation track yet, but... I mean... If you go turn 2 Frodo into turn 3 Bilbo, you're swinging with a 1-3 with Death Touch, that if it connects... that Sorry, you're swinging with a 1-3 with Death Touch that loots when you attack. Where are you getting Death Touch from? I'm not seeing that. The third ability is Death Touch, right? Oh, because Bilbo... Bilbo Retired Burglar adds another Temptation. Yeah. Okay, so you're already on Temptation 3. So Frodo is 1... Bilbo being cast brings another temptation, and then Bilbo's own ability adds a third temptation. Yep. Which isn't terrible at all. I mean, they can just take the damage, right? Like, yeah, yeah, but the thing is, every single creature from now on that attacks has the ability of having all that tech. Like, this is a long, this is going to last the whole game. And I'm not sure if it's as good enough, but it's, in it's interesting. I mean, Gandalf works on the same scenario, right? We also have Gandalf, Friend of the Shire. Three and a blue... For a 4-mana flash, 2-4 Avatar Wizard, you may cast sorcery spells as though they had flash, and whenever the ring tempts you, if you choose any other creature that's not Gandalf, you draw a card. So every single Bilbo trigger, like the one for Enter the Battlefield League, the Battlefield boss drawing you a card. Hmm. I don't know if it's great. I think maybe there's something to it. Like, these are the first 10 cards spoiled. Yeah, I guess a lot of ring temptation... I guess I guess a synergy. I mean, call of the, the call of the ring is a one and a black enchantment 
At the beginning of your upkeep, the ring tempts you, and whenever you choose a creature as your ring bearer, you may pay two left to draw a card. If you have a Gandalf on the battlefield, the call of the ring is drawing your card every upkeep, even without paying life. And more importantly, if you find ways to gain life, maybe because you're attacking with life steal creatures as you're doing this, whenever you play a Bilbo, you draw two cards and pay for life. So just to make sure I understand this card call of the ring whenever you choose a creature as your ring bearer you may pay two life if you do draw a card if i just choose the same creature every turn does that count as choosing a ring bearer or do i have to actually change creatures i think you're choosing to remain with it i think you are actually i think you're choosing it it will get it will count as a way to draw i see all right. I mean, I think my brain is like refusing to process the ring track. I'm like, it all sounds very theoretical. Very. <laughs> I think the ring is less. I think there's less value in the ring itself existing and more in the temptation triggers, according to what I'm seeing. Consistently getting temptation triggers is more important than what the ring itself is doing, but it's additional upside to the whole ETB plan. Okay, so we should be looking primarily at whether the cards themselves give you a bonus for temptation happening. Exactly. I'm wondering if there's so let's for example, Frodo is just speed running reflect is a speed running temptation. And there's one more card I would like to mention before going to the card I actually like, which is Wizard Rockets. It's a chromatic star, but instead of paying one mana, you can pay any amount of mana and make it any color when you sacrifice it. It does center tap. It draws a card not due to the mana ability, but by going to the battlefield. So it might be what Kuldot, eight Kuldotha Rebirth decks want. Instead of four Mishra Bubble, you can actually play eight Chromatic Sphere. So Wizard Rockets looks great to me. Very similar to Terrarian, actually. Yeah. Terrarian has that same clause. It's better. To, it's strictly better Terrarian, almost. Right, because Terrarian, you have to pay two yeah. and you get two back. Wizard Rockets, you can pay zero. You can pay one you can pay four which shouldn't matter but like i've been putting a lot of decks together that have like omen hawkers and um tezzeret static with omen hawker it's pretty great yeah if you have a renowned weaponsmith or an omen hawker the, the wizard rocket filters all that conditional mana into real mana as much as you want in one shot and it's just not that bad right like you can just play it at cantrips it's a slow cantrip, but yeah. you know, it's, a, it's a useful enough effect. So very minor tweak to existing card, but uh, I think it could be important. I like it. And then we have the Lighted Halfling, which is, I think, the best mana lord that has been printed since Deathrite Shaman. <laughs> okay. I still don't see it, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on this. So it's a one mana one two, which is already a lot better than any other mana orc we have in modern right now, like stat wise. Not dying to Renan Six, being able to pressure an opponent the Ferry being on the board. And then it has you may tap it to add one colorless, or you may tap it to add one mana of any color that can only be spent on legendary spells that can be countered. Not legendary creatures, legendary spells. So a Cavern of Souls type clause when you're using it to cast a legendary spell. Exactly. So most commonly nowadays they explain mana dorks, I think it's just Yogmoth. And the color fixing is not the most important aspect of it. It's the acceleration. This provides that same acceleration while providing uncontrollable turn to Grist, uncontrollable Yogmoth, surviving to Renan Six Ping. I think it's just much better than any other mana dork we have access to. Birds of Paradise. Ignoble, noble. I just think it's better than any of them. 
So you're seeing a lot of upside to that uncounterable clause. Because like to me, that's flavor text. I, I don't think of counterspells as being a major part of the play experience of mana dorks, but I, I could be wrong. You know, I don't play a lot of Cavern of Souls, so maybe I don't appreciate how powerful that is. Like, you're talking about cards like Birds of Paradise or Arbor Elf as if they don't have their own upsides, right? They all have upsides. Birds of Paradise fixes your mana, no questions asked. Uh, Arbor Elf can be really explosive with Utopia Sprawl. Ignoble Hierarch adds damage. Yeah, but no- nowadays, any upside you could find, it's immediately eliminated once you get um, fired, taking rid of two creatures or drawing two Brennan Six Ping, which is equivalent of conceding the game. All right, so you're saying that just adding the second toughness already makes it the best mana dork. Yeah. I will say, having a golden goose, you almost try to play gold, gil, um, golden geese. What's the name? What's the name of the goose? <laughs> I'm gonna let you keep guessing because I like all these iterations you're coming up with here. Golden goose, g- gilded? Is it gilded? Nobody tell him. Nobody tell him what. It is. I think I'm gonna go with gilded. I'm gonna go with gilded geese or gilded goose. So, just because it survived red and six. And this not only survives Red and Six, having the one power is huge and not needing any other thing like food or anything. Like, if this was just a one mana, one two mana dork, mm-hmm. I think it would be better than what we have currently in the modern meta. Okay, yeah, I guess I see what you mean. And also, I can have bad ideas and finally play a, an Eldrasti deck with eight mana dorks that can't for colorless. Red, green, Eldrasti lives again. <laughs> Rain Eldrassi lives again. Oh my gosh. But yeah, so that's why I love it. I think it's a really interesting card in that regard. I think that one two mana dork is huge in the current meta. I think it's actually going to be relevant if the meta doesn't change too much, but I don't think it will. And I think the temptation mechanic, the reason the ring is weak, is because the strength of the card lays in the temptation itself, which is fitting lore-wise, and that's what got me to get convinced. It's more about the temptation itself than the ring itself. All right, well said. So we talked a bit about Standard, we talked a bit about Lord of the Rings, which is going straight to Modern and skipping Standard and Pioneer. Oh, sorry, let me, before we get into, before we get into an F set, let me tell you, this art, if you see at the new cards, you have Lobelia, Wizard Rocket, and Gandalf form the same frame of a picture, and the Halfling, mm-hmm. Bilbo, and Frodo all belong to the same party, and it looks great. That is pretty cool, and I think this is one of those sets where being able to have 50 different versions of every card is actually going to be kind of nice, you know, show off different aspects, different styles, uh, art styles for these characters. All right, so now let's get to the main topic of the day, which is March of the Machine Aftermath. 50 card sets. Uh, it's been leaked for a while. We can finally talk about it now. Uh, we've identified, we'll call it a top eight list. I don't think all of these cards will actually be relevant in Modern and Pioneer, but these are the good ones. Hmm. Before we dive into them, I just want to get your big picture impressions so far, Mord. Uh, what do you think about Aftermath as a set, or the concept of a mini set, or even just the, the flavor of how this story ended? So, flavor, I think the story missed one set. I think we needed one extra set, or we needed to make the battle long. I needed Elishnorn to die somehow at the end of the last set, not at the beginning, you know? I just... Because we got the trailer and everything and the first card leaks were Elishron dying, I just felt the whole last set was the aftermath rather than the ongoing fight as it should have been. Right, right. 
I got it like the other way around, and that sort of made me feel like it was an unconclusive, but actually it made sense. So it was not the issue of the amount of information, it was like the delivery of it. Like I felt like the story was over as soon as they showed Ellis exactly. dying and said, oh, all the oil was tied to Ellis Norton. Didn't you know that? <laughs> yeah, okay. We've come up with a novel new way to defeat a, a big high villain is to have everything be tied back to the big boss. Hmm. Hmm. So as for the mini set itself, I mean, I have to say that I hate it. Oh, I don't hate the mini set. I, I, I'm hating how they're selling it and the whole issues. That, it has been surrounded by a whole lot more issues than it should have. I just don't understand why we're doing it. Like, I know that the answers will be oh, because we couldn't fit everything into the main set. We had such a big story to tell. But that, that's a good indication that you need two sets, right? And space them out a little bit. <laughs> exactly like Mort is saying, right? Like, the storyline is too compressed. Give it two sets. I don't, I don't hate mini sets. I have more of a flavor issue than a miniset issue. I don't hate minisets like at all. I don't quite understand this. You know, three weeks later, here's fifty more random cards and like a, a one day long spoiler season. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind for fifty cards. I don't mind. If it was a full set, I would be on racing, but I don't care about fifty cards. I, I actually, I would love if we would get consistent minisets that were actually like 30, 50 cards. And I would love if they were just like hand to hand with the next set, just so, you know, you stretch that week of freshness for an extra two weeks because there's like five new cards in this in this in in the format. They don't have to be format warping; they just have to be a breath of fresh air in the middle between sets. I don't hate that at all. That's an interesting idea, although it still has the mini set problem. So you're okay with this just like random spoiler season three weeks into the release of the newest set? So like Anthology is getting dropped or a little alchemy mini sets getting dropped at random times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it's because you're young and you're just able to like adapt to this new system. I think it's mostly the fact that I'm able to keep up with everything. Like I, if you ask me today, what are the 50 cards of Aftermath? I think I could tell you by memory 47 of them. And I'm confident of that. It's because your mind is nimble and agile and quick, and I'm rigid and stuck in my old ways. Like, I, I cannot handle this. <laughs> and you just, I'm weak, I change. I really can't. <laughs> it's just like, what are these cards doing here? And you read them, it's like, there's a lot of words on the cards, but they, they don't seem that good. Yeah, most of them suck. At least not for our format, so I'm like, why did they, why did they do this? And I guess it's for the story reasons, but I don't know. I know you and me are going to to war over a certain three mana instant in Celestia colors. I don't even have that on here. I mean, if you want that on here, we can fight over it. <laughs> no, no. I know exactly where it is in the Forsaken side. Okay. I have a mouth all right in the Forsaken lands, in the skip lands. All right. So I've ordered the top 10. So actually a top eight, I should say. Eight out of 50 that seem to me like they, they could be players in Modern or Pioneer. And I've ranked these starting from 8th, and more you can contest the, the order as we go. But I'll start at number 8. Alright. This card is only for Pioneer. It is Sagarda Font of Blessings. Two green-white legendary creature angel, 4-4 four, four flying. Other permanents you control have hexproof. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. You may cast angel spells and human spells from the top of your library. 
Pretty boring card, but David pointed out that he thinks this will just make it. This will make it in the Pioneer Angels deck, and for that reason, I give it the eighth spot. What I find interesting about Sagarda is, well, it's it's four mana for a Collected Company-style deck, so that's a bit tough. That's my main issue. Yeah, and the other issue is, I mean, you talked at great length last week with Lawson about the three-mana version of this, right, in uh, blue-white, the Errant and Giada. Yeah, I... I- are you willing to pay one more mana for the Hexproof Fart is the bigger question. I don't think the answer is yes. So the playing off the top of your deck, that's that's functionally the same, right? Like You're losing... So one is Ancients and Humans, the other is Flash and Flying. Hmm. And I guess the Angels deck naturally already wants to be green, whereas it doesn't really want to be blue. So maybe that's another reason why Sigarda might get the nod. Yeah. All right, not much else to say about Sagarda. In the seventh spot, we have Niv-Mizzet Supreme, a card that both David and yourself highlighted as being very interesting. And I personally don't quite see it, so why don't you make the case for me? So, Niv-Mizzet Supreme, I don't know why you're not seeing it. 5 mana, 5 5, flying, each instant and sorcery card in your graveyard, that's exactly two colors, has some has jump start. And more importantly, Hexproof from monocolor is the same as invulnerable. <laughs> okay. All right, so 5-5 five, five flying Hexproof for Wooberg, but like we don't play those cards, right? Why, why would I play that? I mean, because it makes it so every single card in your graveyard becomes a 2-for-1 if needed. It's not a 2-for-1, it's Jumpstart, and it's only cards that are exactly two colors. Like, if cards that were exactly two colors were good, we would still be playing the original niv You don't... I mean, <laughs> they are good. There's just not a critical mass, which is, I think, what this solves. Originally, Misset really needs a critical mass of of two-color spells in order for the hit trigger to not miss. With this one, just having one or two two-color cards in your graveyard and a spare one in your hand for the late game, that's going to be enough. Okay, so you're saying that Jumpstart is as good as drawing a card? Are we imagining that Red and Six is just always in place? So we have plenty of lands... No, no, I'm assuming we're getting enough lands in our hand stuck, and we would like to play a lot of spells easier. Hmm. That's my gamble. What about the fact that we, we have to pay five for this, and then we're tapped out, so we're really not getting anything out of it the first turn we play it? So I think that's going to rely super importantly on it not dying, and that's going to rely on the protections actually being insane. So it has to be as unkillable as I think it is. All right, I'm not convinced. <laughs> I, mean, I, I see what you're saying. I don't see how this makes a deck. But how are, how are you killing this in modern? I'm not going to kill. I'm just going to leave it in play and kill you. Like, it, it doesn't do anything. It's just like a 5-5. Five, five, it's like Colossipede that flies. <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't... I'm not, I'm not going to bother trying to kill it. It doesn't affect the game. I mean, I'm considering it a 5-5 five, five that gives you 70% of a Renaissance emblem, and that's good enough for me. Maybe it's because I haven't seen that many Red and Six emblems. I just don't think of that as being a, like a game-winning emblem. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe I'm wrong. There's not, like, if a, your 5-5 five, five makes it so your next two land drops become an expressive iteration and a Kaya Sky, you are winning that game. Hmm. Okay. Well, happy to be wrong if, if Niv is supreme. <laughs> if Niv is supreme is good, uh, that's, that's only good for Niv Mizzet fans. We can only hope. So that I have in the number seven slot as a concession to you and David. Okay. Number six is a card that, I mean, to me, it looks like it's all upside. It seems like a good card. 
Jarena Dauntless General. It's white black for a legendary creature. Yeah. Human soldier, 2-2. Two, two. When Jarena Dauntless General enters the battlefield, exile target player's graveyard. Activated ability, sacrifice Jarena. Humans you control gain hexproof and indestructible until end of turn. So you're just getting a lot on a two-mana card. This is the first time we have gotten that first ability on an ETV, right? I believe so, yeah. This is the first two-mana ETV that excels a player's graveyard in the whole game. Before this, the most the cheapest one was three-mana in the form of Looming Shaman, mm. Endurance, the Black Mage that has three abilities. Yes, that's right. Yes, Callous Blood Mage. Callous Blood Mage. This is the first time we're getting this on two, which is super interesting. Then the sacrifice ability, I mean, it's like a selfless spirit, but it also gives hexproof. So it's going to save something, possibly multiple things. Yeah. So you're getting plenty of stuff. I think there's no question it's best in class for this kind of effect. I don't know if this is a main deck effect or not. I mean, it ha- it's been good in so many scenarios in the fact that it's a two-man, a two-two legendary. The fact that it's a human means I think in human's decks you just play it because why not? It's both a selfless for when you need it, it's a body for when you need it, and it's a graveyard hate for when you need it. Yeah, I guess the why not is is the real question, right? And the, the why not would be opportunity costs. Like, there's so many good humans. And I think he, the human yeah. tribe has gotten to the point where they could just keep printing powerful two-drop humans forever, and it won't actually change how powerful the tribe is. Cause yeah, it would barely change. At a certain point, you just can't fit them all in. So I think that's kind of where Jarena fits. Like, she's better than existing humans, but I don't know if she changes how good humans as a tribe is. There's another two-drop human on this list of my top eight lists. So, so we'll see, like, how this all shapes up. Uh, but I have Jarena in the number five, sorry, in the number six slot. In the number five slot, I have put Urborg Scavengers. And Mord, I'm curious if you like this card too. I don't love this card. I'm not seeing your love for this, for the tiny dudes. So, Uber Scavengers, 3 mana, 2 and a black for a 2 2 spirit. When it enters the battlefield or it attacks, exile target creature from a graveyard and put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on it. If whatever the exile has flying, it gains this ability, etc., 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 for every single mechanic. Well, it exiles target card, right? It doesn't have to be creatures. Yeah, sorry, it exiles target card and, if it, and it gains the ability if the card has disabilities. So, is this make your own soul flayer? I'm not sure. Like, I'm, re- I'm really not sure. Like, I think the, the immediate comparison would be Graveyard Trespasser, right? Two and a black, exact same mana cost, and it has that same ETB or attack trigger of exiling things. So it's incidental graveyard hate. You don't get that delicious ward clause. What you do get instead is the ability to just keep growing. And is that better? Is that worse? It's probably like a little bit worse on balance. But then there's that upside of like, what if you do make it into a soul flare? Like, wouldn't that be cool? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's, it's more cute yeah. than good. This, this reminds me to a Hearthstone card that was great due to how bad removal is in Hearthstone, which was like a three mana, three, three. That whenever you deal combat damage, you get to adapt, which was the equivalent of getting three at random of all these abilities. And it gave you, and sometimes you got like the equivalent of double strike and you hit again and got another thing and you just won the game. It's like, what happens with this guy if you can get haste consistently? Right, so haste is like the by far the most attractive of these abilities. 
Right? Like it becomes a totally different card if it has haste. Yeah, three mana, three three haste. It's it's so huge. If you play it as a three three haste attack, immediately get something else potentially. So I think the dream with this card is finding a way to consistently making it either a three three haste or a three three hexproof in whatever order it suits you better. Like if you can transform it into a three three into a three three haste attack, make it a four four hexproof by the end of your or turn three, it's amazing, right? The opponent taps out and you have a creature with haste and one with hexproof and you transform this into a three mana four four. But when is that ever happening? I think the best part about this card is that even without going too crazy just by having haste creatures, this is already a three mana four four plus something or not, like three mana four four haste. That's the floor if you have a creature with, grave- with haste in the graveyard, right? I mean, you can get double strike with this. <laughs> you can eat a fury, your fury, their fury. You can technically swing for eight on turn three with just this, right? Play it, get a counter, haste, um, swing, eat a death, yeah, double strike creature, get another counter. You get a counter regardless of what you exile, and I think that's great. So the reason that I have this in the top eight is just because it it doesn't ask for that much setup to do the main thing, which is eat graveyards and get slightly bigger. Now, is that actually good enough? Maybe not. Maybe we actually need it to start doing this whole flare thing to actually be powerful. And there, I'm not sure if that's worth it, but in terms of just like functioning without too much extra investment, I, I like this for that reason. Yeah, it's easy to get going. So I have Urborg Scavengers in the number five slot. Number four is a card that uh, is only legal, or is only new, I should say, to Pioneer. Very, very exciting reprint. It's Training Grounds. Enchantment for a single blue mana. Activated abilities of creatures you control cost two less to activate. This effect can't reduce the mana in that cost to less than one mana. I'm so excited for this, Mord. I'm so happy. Uh, I have yet to place... Uh, what's the name of this? Uh, training Grounds into the stack or Battlefield. I have, never, I have never had a Training Grounds. It's so unique. I mean, this is like a a really strong rule of eight type thing where it's such a unique effect. It changes the way all of your cards play by such a drastic degree that you build a deck around training grounds. And if you have training grounds in play, like cool. If you don't have training grounds in play, your deck sucks. So you really just like couldn't play a training grounds deck for a long time. And they've been gradually giving us more and more of the effect. Like they gave us Biomancer is familiar. They gave us Zerda the Companion, which doesn't work with Training Grounds, which I still find very tilting. <laughs> Finally, they gave us Omenhawker. They gave us Omenhawker in the proper March of the Machine sets. And when I was building up Omenhawker decks, like we haven't actually done a week on this yet, but I hope to do that soon, I kept thinking, <laughs> man, it would be so sweet to have Training Grounds in like these mid power pioneer Omenhawker decks. Like I, I built a lot of modern lists and they all had Omenhawker and Training Grounds. So could I have this in power? Like, this was the greatest upgrade you got from Modern, and now you can actually have it in Pioneer. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's totally safe in Pioneer. Like, it's not that powerful of an effect. Oh, yeah, I don't think it's ever overpowered. So, like, top creatures to use with this. Uh, Duskwatch Recruiter, Growth Chamber Guardian. I think the the Transform cards from the most recent set are actually great with this. There's the Captive yeah. Weird, there's Rona... Any, any one of them that was already playable and seems decent in the deck gets a huge upgrade from this. So it's going to be super fun to build around. I, I don't know how powerful it will be, but I'm excited to find out. 
Also, I'm going to mention a card that I think it's terrible, which is Leyland Immersion, that I don't know why I keep reading it from time to time. <laughs> okay. Save that one for the end. We'll come back to that. We're almost with the top eight. And we have the Perfect. honorable section. So training grounds in number four. Number three is Coppercoat Vanguard. I think this is what I have it lower, but I agree it's a worthwhile card of a top eight. All right, tell us about the Coppercoat Vanguard. So one and a white for a two mana two two human soldier. Each other human you control gets plus one plus zero oh, and has ward. Ward one. I think this is worse mariner. You think it's worse than unsettled mariner? Yeah. Okay, why worse? Because this doesn't stop you stop the other from going face. Or targeting itself. Unsettled Mariner has Ward 1. And gives your face Ward 1. This doesn't. Alright, so I guess that is the big question. Why does Unsettled Mariner not see any play? It was tried for a while, it kind of just fell out of lists and people just stopped putting it in. I just think the Ward 1 on itself is not good enough. And I don't think the plus 1 plus 0 pump, at least in modern, this might see play in Pioneer, and I could be completely wrong there. This could be an additional lord in Pioneer where mana is, the removal is less efficient, so the ward is more annoying. And it might be the answer there. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm banking a lot on the plus 1 plus 0, the, the lord effect, as we call that, actually making a, a huge difference in terms of playability. Like if Unsettled Mariner, the actual card, Unsettled Mariner, gave a plus one plus zero boost, I think it probably would see play. And by extension, I think Coppercoat Vanguard will probably see play, although I acknowledge, like more just saying, it's just it's just worse. It doesn't protect itself, it doesn't protect your face. But it's easier on the colors. Yeah. So in Pioneer, it might. I hope it does in Pioneer. Seems like a good new toy. And next one, we have, I think, one that intrigues both of us and I think most of Pioneer players all around. Yeah, number two, we Obnixilus, Captive Kingpin, two black-red legendary creature demon, 4-3, flying trample. Whenever one or more opponents each lose exactly one life, put a plus one plus one counter on Obnixilus, Captive Kingpin. Then exile the top card of your library until your next end step, you may play that card. Getting some little Corvold vibes from this one, I don't know about you. Big Flyer grows and draws you a million cards. Yeah. So this is like Corbel at home, but in Ragdos colors and for one less mana. It does rely a lot more on specific synergies over Corbel, which is a bit more broad, right? Right, like Obnixilis, you're thinking of specific cards that can do this, not just, it's not yeah. like a natural thing that happens throughout the game. You're like, you're not calling this with Sacrifice itself, but with cards that, ha- that do, do one damage and happen to sacrifice themselves. Or have sacrifice similar like effects. Synergies, rather. Well, you don't need to sacrifice, right? Like, Obnexilis is just looking for that one damage. Yeah, but I think most of us, our heads went to the exact same spot, right? Either Mayhem Devil, which is exactly one damage, mm-hmm. or Cut, which is exactly one damage, and they both work super well in the Ragdos Sack deck list. Yeah, so, I mean, to me, that this is an upgrade to Ragdos Sack, a deck that is not currently top-tier in Pioneer. Uh, the deck definitely gets more powerful when Corval doesn't play, but the trade-offs of going to the third color are significant. So if you can do that now in two colors at an earlier spot on the curve, yeah, I think it's actually worth exploring. What about outside of Rakdos Sec? If I'm reading this correctly, you can get two triggers just by attacking with two one ones. Is that true? I'm not sure if attacking with two one ones gets you two triggers or zero triggers. 
That's a big difference, so we should probably figure that out. So as soon as they have an answer to that, I will let us know. I'm just completely not sure. Like the example David asked was, what about if I just played Lingering Souls? Attack with my two spirits after playing Obmixlas. I mean, if that gets you two triggers, that's very attractive. Yeah, and it's until the end of your next turn, right? It's one of the good ones. Oh, no, it's one of the bad ones. Until your next end step. Okay, so that's not great. It's only one turn. Yeah, yeah. So you don't want this with um, cards that you're forced to do it right now. You want, like, with Cat Oven that you can do it on your opponent's end step, with Mayhem Devil, stuff like how are going to happen in your opponent's end step, and then you end up on your turn and you can play those cards. You'll still get the plus one, plus one counter, but you probably won't get to use the card. Do you think this has any potential in modern? Right, It triggers off your opponent's fetch lands. It allows you to downtick Ren and Six for a card. I don't think it's going to see play in modern, sadly. I think the 4-3 bodies attached to vulnerable. Dying to literally anything, it's a bit too tough. Dying to push, dying to bolt, dying to unholy hit, dying to literally... It, it just gets away from nothing. And in modern, the removal is just too efficient to play a 4-mana do-nothing creature. Yeah, that makes sense. I do hope it will see play in Pioneer. Like, it will transform the Shan Sack into Rakdos Sack. If we want a card that seems tailor-made for modern, we can look at the number one card on this list, Nissa Resurgent Animist. Oh, and, and I'm going to agree blindly here on this one. Yeah, I think Nissa is insane. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Fire it off. Tell me about Nissa. 3 mana 33, Elf Scout, 2 and a green for Mini Omnath at home. So it has landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, add one mana of any color. It's worth noting every single land does this, not just the first one. It's not like Omnath. It's any land, has Lotus Cobra effect. But if this is the second time this ability has resolved this turn, reveal cards from the top of the library until you reveal an elf or elemental card. Put that card into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So you get two triggers, you fetch a sol you fetch an elemental or an elf from your deck, be it another Nisa or a Solitude or a Fury or a whatever. And Nisa, if you play like turn three, Nisa, turn four, sorry, you go like turn four, Nisa plus Fetchland, Nisa costs efficiently only one mana. You could go turn three Nisa, you could go turn four, Nisa plus Teferi. Or Nisa plus recent Rift that you found off the Nisa trigger. Okay, I did not realize that every land gets a Lotus Cobra. I thought only the first land gets a mana. Exactly. It's not just the... F uh, I thought the same and it was a bit weak, and then I read that. That's really freaking upsetting. <laughs> God damn it. This card just, like, really annoys me. I think it's... I'm just, like, fed up with the Elemental Tribe. <laughs> I, I, I wish that we would just stop printing Elemental Tribes. Uh, MH2 just kind of broke me on this. Uh, the fact that Nissa only plays with... The most obnoxious creatures in the format and with more copies of herself is just it hurts right <laughs> like she finds solitude risen reef fury endurance and herself and omnath that's all that's all she does and she does it so efficiently that it's like you, you'd be a fool not to play her at least the first one's pretty free you can play as many as you want i don't know great with ren is six great with fetch lands yeah, I think she's insane. Just getting random elementals. I'm not sure if you play a full playset because you don't want to hit many of them. Maybe you just play two and go off with uh, as a mini Omnath additional value. It's like must kill on side that if you tap out, opponent gets to two for one you and barely cost them any mana. 
it's annoying any way you look at it. Not having an ETV is huge, I think, in it not being a bastard and annoying. So the way to defend yourself from Nyssa is to kill it before the second land comes into play. Yes. Then, then you're only down... Well, you're not down, right? But they get that first mana bag, then they crack the fetch. That's your chance. If you can kill it in response to the cracked fetch, you come out ahead. Yes, exactly. <sighs> I don't know. I mean, it seems very good. I don't think you can even really brew around it because it's just so generically powerful in the good stuff elementals pile. I think it's just going to be play played in that deck. I don't even think it's going to see elf play. But I really like the card, and I do love that kind of decks. So I, I don't hate that card being good. Yeah, I guess something has to be good enough for modern, and <laughs> it's Nissa for, for starters. But that's my top eight from the aftermath. What did I miss, Mord? What, what am I not seeing here? What's on your radar? So I'm going to contest some cards in your top eight with my beloved cards. To start with, I'm going to... St- say that this card is pretty likely to not see any play, but I'm going to try my goddamn hardest, which is Cosmic Rebirth. Cosmic Rebirth. So this is one green, white, instant. Choose target permanent card in your graveyard. If it has mana value with three or less, you may put it onto the battlefield. If you don't put it onto the battlefield, put it into your hand. In addition to all of that, you gain three life. Perfect. What else do you need? It says so much with so little. Well, I would like to get a mana advantage if I'm going to do this, and I don't see Cosmic Rebirth doing that. You, you can get a card, you can get a land if you want card advantage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just instant speed getting back any of the three mana walkers, getting back a fetch land if needed. Getting, I, I think it's all on the back of gaining three life is never irrelevant in today's modern Maybe I'm looking at it with tinted color glasses because I love this sort of effect. Maybe it just brought back giving me flashbacks. I don't know. It just feels too fair. I mean, I love the versatility of it being like a combo ramp card plus unearth plus... Well, basically just those two things. Um, hmm. But... Ah, I don't know. It just seems too fair. A little bit too slow. It might be a bit too fair. But unique. I mean, it's, it's unique to see this at instant speed. And the versatility is nice. So that's Cosmic Rebirth. You mentioned the Leyline something. And then for some reason, Leyline Immersion, it's a 4-mana aura that gives a legendary creature worth 2 and, the, and make 5 mana that can only be casted for spells. I don't know why I'm looking at this card. Maybe I have delusions of grandeur or going turn three something, turn four, play this and cast a ring to light. Maybe I'm just insane. I mean, you could just cast a ring to light without playing this first. No, no, this ramps you. One mana. All right. All right. I don't know. Maybe it's just me having delusions. And finally, the worst card of them all that I'm never going to play, but I'm always going to say I'm hoping I will play someday, is Tasri. Oh god. Alright, you got to read this one. Super easy. 3 mana, 3, 3. All your creatures that have an activated ability also gain the ability of tapping for 1 mana of any color for activated abilities. Any creature that already has an ability gains the ability of making 1 mana of any color for um, to pay for activated abilities. And then you have 5 mana... Tap it, 
mill five, put all creatures with activated abilities that aren't mana abilities into your hand. I mean, I like the way that you worded it. That's a lot cleaner than what's actually written on the card. I know, I know, I know. So with a lower to five color commander, even for the activated abilities tribal deck, the training grounds deck, perhaps. I don't think that that deck actually wants the ability to turn its things into mana dorks. Um, I could be mistaken. I mean, it depends on how expensive the mana abilities are. But I don't know, it's just interesting. I don't, I'm not sure I love it. I, it might be just worth training grounds. Just a card, you know, I just like to look at those cards with some love. And then we have the Tranquil Frillback, which is the dinosaur that I'm not sure how it works. I think... So it's a 3-mana 3-3 that when it enters the battlefield, you may pay green up to three times. And then you get to choose that many between Destroy Target Artifact or Enchantment, Exile Target Player Graveyard, or Gaining 4 Life. You cannot pick the same one twice, right? I don't know. I mean, you asked that a while ago. I still have no clarity on that issue. But it seems like... You could. Whenever it, <laughs> the power level of this card is gonna hinge exactly on that. If I can pay this in Tyran as a six mana gain twelve, or six mana blow up your saga, your hammer, and your cigar aside, I like it, and I don't like it if otherwise. Well, all right. So that my my biggest critique of the tranquil frillback is just too much mana. Even if you could do that, it's just so expensive. So you're saying, okay, I'm gonna put it in an infinite mana deck. Put it in the Titan deck. <laughs> No, no. You put it on Titan, or you play it in a Landless Call deck, or you play it on a Bial deck that's playing green. Or you play it in a Coco deck, where sometimes you Coco with 5 mana and you hit this and you pay the 1 for life or removal. Mm. You play this in any deck that actually makes a lot of mana or is able to put a 3-drop into play with spare mana. Well, that seems a little optimistic to me, but I can see where your head is at. Tazri, I'm not seeing it. Tazri needs to have a card of instability, and Tazri is... No, no, Tazri, I just think it's... Yeah. Tazri is impossible. <laughs> okay. And I think I would be a dishonor to David if I don't mention Nahiri's Resolve. So Nahiri's Resolve, three red-white enchantment. Creatures you control get plus one plus so and have haste. That's a static text. At the beginning of your end step, exile any number of target non sorry not target exile any number of non-token artifacts and or creatures you control return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of your next upkeep so they'll come back at your next upkeep they're going to have haste they're going to have a boost you're going to re-trigger all your etbs you won't have them during your opponent's turn so you won't be blocking with these cards for example exactly so it's what if we make teleportation circle big and board wide I mean, it sounds very attractive, but like, gosh, what turn of the game is this? It's so slow. And it's asking you to not defend yourself on that turn? We're going ham. Like, Asika's Chariot would be very cool with this, right? Oh, <laughs> but, yeah. But you need to block. You need the Chariot to stay in play. I guess you have the cats for that. You, you, you let the new cats block. You block with the new cats. You just take the hit once. Then the cats can get rid of, can handle it. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more powerful than Teleportation Circle, but for an extra color and extra mana, it, it had better be more powerful. And it's not like Teleportation Circle is blowing anyone's socks off in Pioneer right now. I kind of like the regular Nahiri, the um, Affinity for Equipment one. All right, yeah, I think it's interesting. So 6 mana, 5, 4, Affinity for Equipment, Bodos plus 4. Whenever an equipped creature you control attacks, excel the top card of your library, you may play this turn... You may cast equipment skill spells excel this way without paying their mana cost. 
So what I like here is that she just asks you for exactly one thing, play as many equipment as you possibly can, and then the reward pays you off on the exact same axis. Yeah, it's a 2-mana 5-4. So ideally, this is a 2-mana 5-4 that whenever you swing with an equipped creature... And this becomes amazing if you're swinging with a bunch of creatures. I think this is amazing with like um, the 1-drops and 2-drops that have Living Weapon. Yeah, it's Flare Husk, Barbed Batter Fists... Yeah, if you can curve into these and you just play four stone force and some of big of the big equipment. So like I swing with two of I swing with two of the border idiots that ping and a one one. And in one of those I hit a battle skull and I put it into play for free. Sadly, this the attack trigger does not count cards like Rabbit Battery. Even though those are equipments and creatures, they are not equipped creatures. They are not equipped. Yeah, yeah, that's why we're focusing on specifically. I mean, they, they help, right? They help you cast Nahiri, they can be put into play off Nahiri's yeah. ability, but they won't give you that delicious, delicious free trigger. Delicious trigger. So you can play them, just don't expect them to be great. Yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, a lot of these cards, they're, they're cute and they're probably misses. Um, hmm. so I agree. It's an interesting set. I think on, on closer inspection, it's less powerful than I initially thought. Like during the leaks, I was like overwhelmed by all the new texts. But after actually taking a closer look at them, I think very few of these are going to impact our formats. I agree. But that's what I actually hope that's the case. You know, if this is going to be like some small mini set that's going to be annoying, it'd rather not be something that's going to make too much change. I think this was a situation where people would complain if and if not. A lot of changes, we complain. Now changes, people would complain. I mean, it all raises the question of why I do it at all, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> is it really that important for us to have de-sparked versions of Planeswalkers so that you can make them your commander? Like, if that was the, if that was the end game of all this story arc, I'm going to be so pissed. No, no, I, I actually like the concept of minisets and I hope they get back to doing it just in a, a bit of a less greedy, you know, mana traders, um... A bit of a least wizard sort of way, you know? Stop being so greedy, so out of the basket, and so, like, uncoordinated about it. The fact these are five cards... These are five card boosters that got the sa- cost the same as a normal booster pack. Wait, really? That's how they're selling? Right, yep. They're selling for same MSRP. <sighs> Alright. Before we go more, do you believe, based on the whole desparking thing, that future sets will have fewer planeswalkers? I think they're gonna have fewer blitzwalkers. I don't. I do, it. however, <laughs> have a super. Eh? I don't believe it. I think this is all like, uh, oh, they're trying to make it a big thing. Hear me but out. They can't stay away from planeswalkers. They just can't help themselves. I come for a super interesting question. Will Lord of the Rings have planeswalkers? No. Are you sure about it? I think that they're gonna say no, and they're going to point to this desparking thing as like, oh, see, it's the new era of. No planeswalkers, but then they can't help themselves. They're just going to keep printing them. They've already revealed like Commodore Guff as a planeswalker deck for the next uh, Commander Legends set. Yeah, I was going to mention that to close out the last bit of news is Commander Masters has been spoiled. It comes with four amazing planeswalkers. Commander Commodore Guff gets his first card ever being a planeswalkers matter commander. Literally, the plus one makes a one one that taps only for planeswalker spells and then deals and minus three deals damage equal to the amount of planeswalkers you have. Yeah, so I I mean, that to me says that Planeswalkers are not going anywhere. Yeah. That this whole desparking thing is pointless, that, you know, we don't really like these characters <laughs> that much. We don't need to see 
planeswalker and non-planeswalker versions of them. Just have the courage to kill your characters off and start a new story. So I don't know. Yeah, I would I would have appreciated them killing some of them instead of just unsparking them. It has made sort of the desired effect in cards that due to lose there are certain planeswalkers that due to lose their spark, they lose some amount of their essence. And they actually got hurt by that, like um Huatli and Saheli being separated by the fact that they can't planeswalk within each other now and we get the cold force Thopteryx as a proof of Saheli's lab to of what Liz to Zaheli as she herself is now becoming an inventor. And in that aspect, it works because losing their spark means losing something about themselves. But in other cases, I super don't care. Like, also with Omnixilis, with him being caught in the middle of the five families he destroyed, it becomes a bit more interesting. But I don't care about Nahidi being angry for the fourth time. Just the whole Avengers Endgame stuff was just super played out. Like, we're several years late to this party, and it's not that interesting anymore. Like, and you end up with this incoherent set and an incoherent 50-card mini set, where these cards have nothing in common with each other. They just don't make sense. Like, why is there... Yeah. Anyway, I'm getting derailed. But you know what I mean, right? Like You're, you're not getting railed, you're getting angry. It just doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know why we're doing this. But none of this set made sense. None I don't know. Did. Did you ever read Undersea the Upheaval? The Undergrowth Sorcery? I don't think it's good, I just think it's fun. Card seems bad to me. One green green sorcery. Okay. Distribute X plus one plus one counters, where X is the number of creature cards in your graveyard. Creatures get vigilance this turn. Yeah, it might be bad, it just felt fine. Fun. Not fine. It's it's just incoherent to me. All right, well, before I get off onto any more angry rants, I think we're out of time for this show. <laughs> any final thoughts, Morn? No, I, I'm going to say the same thing that I, have said, that I have said at the beginning of the episode. I think small sets, 40, 50, 60 card sets, are a really good way to give us something in between the two or three months to keep the formats fresh. I think they should be small. I think they shouldn't be particularly relevant. I think they should have only a handful of playable cards. I don't think they should be as expensive as a normal booster pack. I agree with the concept, not with the implementation of it. It's been three weeks. It's not three months. It's been three weeks since the last set came out. No, no, but... So, I, I maybe it doesn't happen to you, but I have that issue. Like, So, a new set comes out every two or three months... Like the last two or three, the last two weeks before the new set feel a bit stale, and I would love for this to sort of fix that issue of keeping the formats, giving the formats one or two weeks of fresh air before sets. This wasn't the way to do it. Maybe the way to do it is the other way around. Instead of launching a big set and then a small set, you launch a small set like a precursor of the big set, and instead of launching it two weeks, you launch it two weeks before the other. Maybe there's another way to spin it. I like the concept. I just think the implementation needs a lot of work. All right. Fair enough. I think we will leave it there. Mord, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dan. Love to hear you hating on (laughs) poor Wizards Aftermath. They're doing their best. They just suck at it. (laughs) (laughs) They're doing their best to rob you of your money, Dan. Can't you appreciate the effort they're going through? I don't even know how to buy this set. Like, I can't draft it, so I have no idea no, how to no get idea. these cards. I've, this is a complete mystery to me, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how this all plays out. They're going to appear. I don't know. I barely play physical magic, so that's not going to annoy me. 
I just hope they're gonna be on MTCO and I'm gonna be fine. Yeah. All right. We'll leave it there. Thanks, board. No, thanks so much, Dan. Have a beautiful night, everybody. Bye-bye. Decklist for this episode can be found at our homepage, faithlessbrewing.com. And tune in next time as we continue our brewing season with March of the Machine. Support for this podcast is provided by brewers like you. Join the Faithless family and help support the show at patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing for Discord access, bonus content, and more. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Thank you.